I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. You'll need a Bible, so the guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention. They'll get you one of those Bibles that's marked for you at Ephesians 5. Keep that as our gift to you and bring it back each Lord's Day as we look at God's Word together. We just have a couple of more messages left in our series in the book of Acts. We always observe, though, the hallmark holidays, and so today being Father's Day, we have a message that's centered on that theme. American culture is extremely confused about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. That's because the culture at large has no authoritative source from which to get answers and on which to base life and its most fundamental issues. It's gotten so bad that at her confirmation hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee last year, President Biden's nominee and now Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson was asked a simple question, can you provide a definition for the word woman? USA Today described her response saying, Jackson, appearing confused, responded, I'm not a biologist. Now on this Father's Day, just so there is no confusion, when I speak of men and fathers, I'm referring to those of you whose birth certificate says male, as determined by non-biologists who could observe your anatomy. When an expectant couple does a, what we call a gender reveal, they're basing the determination on what ultrasounds show about the child's anatomy. Thankfully, I can refer to men and fathers today, and all of you who are here and who fit those categories know what I mean, and indeed, you have a birth certificate that reflects a pretty straightforward understanding. Matters may indeed become even more confused for the next generation, but for now at least, the birth certificates of all adults bring clarity and not confusion. But come what may, we have God's Word. And it tells us plainly this, at the very beginning of human history, God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female, He created them. God's Word also tells us why He created male and female and the roles that He has assigned to each. We're reminded then of that this morning. We're going to see some practical ways that men on this Father's Day can fulfill their God-given roles in the home. Let's bow then and ask God to help us. Our Father, we thank you that we can gather on this day and set it aside on the Lord's day as we worship you to focus on what you say about men and about their God-given roles as fathers. I ask you to help me, help all of us who you have given that blessed and awesome and daunting task to listen carefully to appropriate your truth to our lives, to apply it so that we can better glorify you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, you should have received an outline for the message when you came in today. And I say, first of all, in that outline, that men are created to lead in the home. Verse 22, as Pastor Larry read for us in Ephesians 5, says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church's body, of which he is the Savior. 
Now, the issue of roles in the home and church is really a fair test of our belief in the authority of God's Word because it's an issue that's fraught with misunderstanding, and it's sometimes used to justify the sin of abuse on the part of sinful men. But assuming that it can indeed be understood and it can be obeyed in a way that not only avoids misuse but results in flourishing by both men and women and their children, then I suggest we consider what God says and we put it into practice. We are Bible people, and we do what the Bible says without caving to the inevitable pressure to accommodate the world's thinking and desires. That pressure is so inevitable that Scripture wants us and warns us that we must withstand it, saying famously in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be squeezed into the world's mold, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The further the world drifts from even laws of nature, not to mention the commands of Scripture, then, friends, the weirder we're going to look and the more pressure there's going to be to conform. And when and if that happens, I hope we will respond by appealing to our authority, God's Word, the Bible. Several years ago, I heard John MacArthur tell of his church being boycotted by some feminist groups who were opposed to the church's teaching on these matters. And he said there were reporters outside the building who were putting microphones in the faces of their members as they left the service, but consistently the members would simply say, we just believe what the Bible says. We just follow the Bible. Now, protesters tend to aim at large targets like Grace Community Church, where John MacArthur leads, but we could have occasion to have similar treatment in the future as we plan to do a series even this fall and send mailers out to the community, a series on what the Bible teaches about sex and gender. And I hope that our church will respond as theirs did when and if that happens. When verse 23 says the husband is the head of the wife, it's given as the reason that wives are to do what's said in the prior verse. Verse 22, submit to your husband's leadership. Why should I do that? Why should women do that? Because, verse 23 starts, notice, with the word for, or because, because the husband is the head of the wife. And despite attempts by evangelical feminists to make the word head in that verse mean something other than authority, that is, in fact, what it means. And that's supported as well by the teaching of Scripture going all the way back to the beginning. So I say in your outline that male leadership was established at creation. Genesis chapter 2, we have a a prolonged explanation of the sixth day of creation. So in Genesis chapter 1, you have the six days mentioned and what were made on each of those six days. On the sixth and final day of creation, God's crowning achievement, humanity, is made. But then he devotes chapter 2 to now expanding on that sixth day in some detail. And in doing so, here's what Scripture says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. 
Now notice that it is Adam who was created first in God's divine order, and Adam is spoken to first by God to receive in effect his marching orders. And the woman is made second, and she is brought to the man. That chapter goes on to say, the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Now let me stop here for a moment and recognize that some of you wives are cringing at where this is going. Because the last thing that you need in your home is for your husband to be emboldened in his selfishness by being told that he's the man of the house and you're supposed to follow him. He uses his authority for himself and not for my benefit and those of our children. And now on Father's Day, the pastor's giving him more justification for doing that. And I just want to say that I am not giving justification for selfish leadership, and more important, God does not either. So men, this teaching is not so that you can boss everyone around and make life as comfortable as possible for yourself. We'll see in this message before we are through that our role as men, far from being selfish, is instead to be selfless. The 17th century British preacher Matthew Henry pointed out beautifully the implication of how God created the woman. He said this, the woman was not made out of his head to rule over him, but neither was she made out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him and near his heart to be beloved. But that order of creation is indeed significant. In fact, its significance is pointed out in, in the New Testament where we read of it being the basis of God's design for His church as well as the home. Here's what 1 Timothy 2 says, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man for, because, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, if you've been following the news, you know that the Southern Baptist Convention has been tied up in knots over the last several months, and they had their annual convention this past week where they had to deal with this issue, and, and some churches were dismissed from the convention because they refused to follow what God says with regard, regard to this. Given what God has said about this matter, it's a shame that what many have written about in the last several years is true. It's called the feminization of the church. There's all kinds of stuff being written about that over the last couple of decades, and it's about the fact that so many of the faithful people in our churches, those who volunteer and keep the churches going, are in fact women. In many evangelical churches, professing Bible-believing churches, the men are nowhere to be found. We've intentionally sought to counter that trend, and thankfully God has given us success, I'm, I'm glad to say, as you can tell by seeing lots of men around here and men who, along with the women, move the mission of the Lord forward through our church. Male leadership was established at creation, and I say in your outline, it was demonstrated at creation. One of the ways in which it was demonstrated is that Adam was given authority over the rest of creation by naming. 
the rest of creation. Genesis chapter 2 goes on to say this, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man. Now that's going to be important. That's why I have it underlined. He brought them to the man. We're going to be reminded in a bit that he brought the woman to the man as well. He brought them to the man to see what he, the man, would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. And it goes on to say, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and like he had done with the other portions of creation, he now brought this marvelous creation to the man. And the man said in song of praise to God, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now you see this convention in the ancient Near East that the power to name something or someone showed authority over it or them. We see it when officials were installed by kings and emperors. For example, the Bible says in 2 Kings, Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, son of Josiah, king in place of his father Josiah, and changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim to show who's in charge. And we read in the next chapter, Nebuchadnezzar took the king captive to Babylon. He made Madaniah, his uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. And then in that familiar story, one that many of us know about Daniel and his three friends who were taken captive in Babylon, removed from their home in Jerusalem and Israel, that one of the first things Nebuchadnezzar did was to change their names from Jewish names to Babylonian. So the Bible says the king ordered the chief of his court officials to take some of the Israelites captive, and among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then it tells us the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, with that background and, and that understanding, then what we're told in the third chapter of the Bible is important for understanding God's structure in the home. Because chapter 3, we're told this. Adam named his wife Eve. So naming was a convention in scriptural times and in the ancient Near East of showing that one had authority over. Male leadership was demonstrated by the naming process in Genesis 2 and 3, and it was also demonstrated when Eve was made to be Adam's helper. As God paraded the animals in front of Adam two by two, male and female, for Adam to name them, it began to dawn on Adam that he was alone, that unlike the animals, he had no human partner. And so here's what the Bible says, For Adam no suitable helper was found, so the Lord God made a woman. Now in the phrase suitable helper here is what Ray Ortland says in a large and helpful volume called Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. He says, Here we encounter the paradox 
of manhood and womanhood. On the one hand, the woman alone out of all the creatures was suitable for him. She alone was Adam's equal. A man may enjoy a form of companionship with a a pet dog, but only on the dog's level. With a wife, a man finds companionship on his own level, for she is his equal. On the other side of the paradox, the woman is the man's helper. The man is not created to help the woman, but the reverse. The man is to love his wife by accepting the primary responsibility for making their partnership a platform displaying God's glory, and the woman is to love her husband by supporting him in that godly undertaking. And just to underscore the truth of that, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Bible says, man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So the woman is equal, but on the other hand, she and the man are made for different roles, assigned different tasks. We see an illustration of this, friends, in something that all Orthodox Christians believe in what we call the Trinity or the Triunity. The Trinity, most of you know, is that there is one God in three persons. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are the one true and living God. You and I cannot get our minds around that. The day you figure out everything about God, you become God, and that ain't going to happen, okay? But he's one God in, in, the, in three persons. And the Bible teaches that they are equal, all of them in their essence, in who they are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that the Father submits, or excuse me, the Son submits to the Father. And so that submission on the part of God the Son to God the Father in no way detracts from his, his equality with God the Father as indeed God. And the Bible teaches the same for men and women or anybody, any other roles that are played among humans. All of humanity is equal before God. And so Galatians 3.28 says, in Christ there is neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ. But that doesn't eliminate different functions for us to carry out any more than it did and does within the triunity. And so Ortland goes on to say, In the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying way. And so, men, we were made to lead in the home. But, I say in the outline, we've fallen behind. What we've seen so far is God's original design. It is still His design for roles in the home. But matters have become infinitely complicated with the entrance of sin into God's world. We call the first act of sin in the human race the fall. And so I have the word that you filled in, fallen, in quotes. We call it the fall not because it's an accident, but because it resulted in the removal of humanity from its exalted position of ruling God's world on his behalf. Man now pursues his own agenda rather than God's, and that is a fall from his original position under God. And that fall involved an attack, I say in the outline, on the home. Have you ever noticed that we call that first sin Adam's sin or Adamic sin? 
Adam gets the blame, even though, as we're going to be reminded in a bit, Eve did all the talking. So we call the, the first sin Adam's sin rather than Eve's, even sh though she was more actively involved than he was. Romans chapter 5, sin entered the world through one man. And that's because the first sin involved an abdication of responsibility on the part of Adam. And in the New Testament, that is used as support for why men are to, despite our temptation not to, we are to lead. And so in the New Testament, again, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man for because Adam was formed first, then Eve. We've seen that Adam was created first, and he was to lead his wife, and Eve was given to him as a helper that he was indeed to lead, but he failed to do so. And that then, Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was, who was deceived. So this is saying that God's order in the home was violated in the original sin of humanity. It was supposed to be the man first and the woman helping him. But in that first sin, that order, that structure was attacked. It's not that the woman was more susceptible to deception, but rather the mere fact that it was the woman playing the dominant role was contrary to God's intention. One New Testament scholar, Dwayne Litvin, has said this, some see Paul arguing here that women, as represented in their archetype Eve, are more gullible and thus more susceptible to error than men. And thus they say females should not be in places of teaching or authority for that reason. But rather, Paul is saying, in effect, look what happens when the creation order is reversed and the man abdicates the leadership role. And indeed, it was the woman playing the primary role in the fall. I remind you of this from Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And then it goes on to say, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did, did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. The dialogue continues. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Now, if you're paying attention, you should be asking yourself, hey, where's the guy who was made first? Where's the guy who was given the original instructions before the woman was ever created at all? Where's that guy? Isn't he supposed to be leading his home? Why is he not around while his family is headed for spiritual disaster? Not to mention the rest of us who are his children. Adam, where are you? And here's what the passage says. She also gave some to her husband. Who was with her? So where was Adam in all of this? The text tells us Adam was there with Eve. 
And in fact, it should be noted that all the verbs in this section are, are plural. From verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent addresses the woman, but he uses the plural you to the woman's use of an inclusionary we and the serpent's description of the results formulated to both, there's every indication that both are there, Adam and Eve. The fall involved an attack on the home and the structure that God made for the home and a failure to follow that structure. And it resulted then, I say in your outline, in confusion in the home. So God said to Adam, the Bible says, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Notice who it is that God calls out. God already knows everything that's transpired. He already knows about the dialogue between Satan and Eve, the woman. He already knows about all that. And yet, who does he call out? Adam, have you eaten? He addresses him because he's responsible. And like any good man, Adam promptly proceeds to blame his wife. First two words out of his mouth are the woman. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And from this day forward, blame shifting to others, including blame shifting to God, which is what is implied here. It's the woman you gave me. So it's her fault and it's your fault. And now all of that became natural. The first sin involved an attack on the home and a successful one at that. Blame shifting and more than began here. From this day forward, the battle of the sexes becomes natural. Many women seek to lead their husbands. Many men seek to sinfully dominate their wives or to passively abdicate their God-given role. Men were created to lead in the home. Sin has caused us to fail in fulfilling our role. We have, as I say in the outline, fallen behind. But thanks be to God, God in Christ is recreating us and is in the process of restoring homes to their original design. Rather than men sinfully dominating their wives or passively abdicating their responsibility, Christian men are called to do what I say in the outline. Serve in the home. Sin has happened. It has its effects. It has the effects of sinful domineering or sinful abdication that we see in our homes, and God is restoring what He originally designed through the gospel and through people who obey the gospel that causes men then to move from being tyrants or men who are absent to men who actively serve in their home. They do so a couple of ways. The first is by loving leadership. Verse 25 of Ephesians says famously, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Over the years, you've heard me give this working definition of love as doing what is in the best interest of another. 
doing what's in the best interest of another. And so a man must act on behalf of his wife. He does what's in her best interest. He does what's in the best interest of his children. And he must act and be active in doing so. But in order to do that, he's going to have to know, first of all, his wife. It's Father's Day. We celebrate parenting on on this day. But I'm focused primarily on the man's responsibility to his wife for this reason. Men, the best gift that parents can give to their children is for them to see a mom and a dad who love each other as Christ does. And so you and I, as men in our homes, need to model that before our children. So you must know your wife well. And the Apostle Peter said as much when he spoke about the role of women in 1 Peter chapter 3, and then he shifted to the role of men, and here's what he said about husbands. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and it heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. When Peter says to we husbands, be considerate in the way you live with your wives. When we speak of someone being considerate, a considerate person, we often use that to mean they're, they're polite, they're well-mannered, they're considerate. But it's actually the word for, for thinking. In fact, the King James says in, of this verse, husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Know them. Consider them. So it's not considerate in the sense of polite or thoughtful. It's considerate in the sense of consider this. Think about this. Think about this woman, this partner that God has given you. So husbands, be considerate, be thoughtful. Think about your wives as you live with them. It means at least three things. It means that we men, fellows, must know women in general. Something about women in general. Now, by definition, what I just said is generalities. But in general, you're going to find a host of traits about your wife that are different from you. And so treat her accordingly as a woman and God's gift to you in that form. But then you also must seek to know your wife not just as a woman in general, one among the many, but rather your wife in particular with her particular personality, her particular penchant, her particular weaknesses and strengths, her particular desires. You get to know her. You consider her in particular. That means things like, I don't know, talking. But it's a perennial problem, isn't it? We don't talk. We don't communicate. Men who love their wives and consider them want to get to know them further so they know how to better serve them, do what's in their best interest. That requires communication. That requires receiving information from them and assimilating it. And then men must do this for life. This command in 1 Peter chapter 3 is written in a way in Greek that says it's an ongoing responsibility. 
And so we do it for life. Now, why for life? Why can't I just give her a test at the beginning? <laughs> Find out what she's like. Well, guess what? Her circumstances change over time. She changes over time, which means her needs change over time. So it's an ongoing responsibility. Men serve their homes by loving leadership, doing what's in the best interest of their wives, learning what that is because they consider them, they think about them, they get to know them. And they also serve by, I say in the outline, godly leadership. Again, verse 25 of Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Two, here's the purpose, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Washing with water through the Word, that is the cleansing effect of God's Word on those who hear it and heed it. And in order to have that effect in our homes among couples, husbands and wives, with husbands leading in a godly way, in order for that to happen, men, we have to make the Word of God central to our homes. Now, when I say that, what most of you think of is, all right, we need, we need to start a, a regular time before dinner with me as the husband opening the Bible and having a little mini sermon for the family before we have supper. Now, for many decades, that was something that, that families did. It's something that families, some families still do. It's a very good thing to do. It's not something the Bible says to do, but it's a good thing to do in order to carry this out. If you can do that, then you're better than me. <laughs> because at some point, your children are going to get to the point where you're not even having dinner together anymore, for one. So it makes it very difficult to do, but you can still make the Word of God central to your home. And you can do that Monday through Saturday, not just on Sunday. If the Word of God is central to our homes... It is so not only in a set time of reading and discussing, but hear this, but at all times, from the moment you rise to the time you go to bed, in your conversations, you regularly invoke God's truth. That's what Deuteronomy chapter 6 famously says for families. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, walk along the road, lie down, and when you get up. If you were to ask my two daughters, Lainey and Annie, some of the most meaningful times that we had one-on-one -on -one together, they were when we were in our vehicle together, just me and one of them, and we talked. And I was bringing them home from one of their sporting events or from school. And we talked about what happened at school and what difficulties they were having there or what happened in their game. And in all of that, it was my job to bring to bear God's truth on life. Talk to them about what was going on in the light of God's truth. Men, we make the Word of God central to our families, to our homes. That's part of what godly leadership requires. 
It also means that we are going to protect our families from harmful influences. And I'm going to talk about some of the ways we men can do that. But this is a point at which those of you that are participating in our parent dedication, if you're going to have your children out here with you, then you can go fetch them from the nursery or uh, wherever they are and bring them back, and we will have our parent dedication in, in just a bit. So men, if we're going to serve our families by godly leadership, we must make the word central. And according to the last part of verse 27 of chapter 5, it teaches that we must protect our families from harmful influences. Our objective for our families is the same as that of Christ for His church. Verse 27, to do this, present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. This means that, among other things, we're to protect from spiritually harmful influences. How many of you men would stand idly by while someone broke into your home and harmed your family? None of us would, of course. Much less would any of us actually participate in the harm. But hear this, guys. If we would be vigilant and active in protecting our families from physical harm, why would we not be more vigilant and active in protecting from spiritual harm? And yet, if we think about it and we're honest, many of us are not. We may have alarms on our homes and we may have our financial house in order, but we've allowed spiritual intruders into our homes, sometimes by invitation. If we are going to know our wives and children for how best to love them, we need to know their particular vulnerabilities in order to protect them. So in addition to saying we're not going to allow stuff on TV in our house that's spiritually harmful, we're not going to do it. In addition to that, you know your wife, you know your children. Kim is very feeling-oriented. She can feel the pain of others. When they talk about their pain, she, you can see it. I've seen it many times. She can feel their pain. She feels my pain. I know that about her. I know how sensitive she is. In order to protect her, one of the things it means is I do not burden her with all of the burdens of my ministry. She can tell when things are weighing on me, and I will ask her to pray, but she does not know the details unless she happens to be involved. Part of that is because of how sensitive she is. And it's a way of protecting her. Giving your children all of the best of material things, guys, or complaining because you can't give them more material things, rather than spiritually, means they can see what's important to you. So establish some rules in your home. Set godly priorities about what's most important, spiritual over material. Rules don't change the heart, of course, but good rules point us to where the heart should be even when the heart's not in it. And so I recommend you have standards for yourself and for your home. In summary, men, real men, real men, love Jesus. Because they love Jesus, they love their wives and their children, and they do what's in their best interest. To the extent real men who love Jesus have not done that, real men repent. And they bring that before the Lord. 
And here's your take-home truth. Men are called to lead their families to Jesus. Let's ask God to help us to do that. Our Father, we thank you again for gathering us, allowing us this time to look at what your word says about the family, about husbands, about wives, men, and women. Lord, sin has distorted the good gifts that you have given to your world, and there is pressure upon us to then compromise the structure that you have clearly set forth in your word for the home and for the church. And so I ask you, Lord, to grant us your aid. We cannot withstand the onslaught of the culture. We are individually too weak to carry out our responsibilities without your strength. And so we ask for that. We ask for your Holy Spirit to cause us to desire that for ourselves and for our families. And I pray, Lord, that the family of families that is this church will be one that's pleasing to you because we collectively seek to implement in our homes what you have said for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.